Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 64. Uh, This week's recording is a special out-of-band episode where I get to talk to one of my colleagues, Andreas Walter, about SQL Server permissions. So it's only me, so that Andreas and I can sort of geek out, uh, and there's also no news. Uh, There will be plenty of news in our next episode, though, uh, thanks to Microsoft Ignite. So Andreas, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so my background is actually quite practical. I've been working in the industry in SQL Server for about 20 years before I joined Microsoft, and I have been dealing with all kinds of uh, scenarios, including security, of course, and now I'm a security PM in the team, taking care mainly of the permission system. SQL Server is kind of interesting, right? It's, it's a relatively complex product and it has a relatively complex permission model. And I'm going to be honest with you. And I want to I want to see if you agree with this or not, you know. And that is, you know, I've worked with a lot of customers over the years on various um, SQL Server related projects, both SQL Server and Azure SQL database. I don't think I've ever come across a single customer who has really taken what I would say full advantage of the richness of the permission model that is built into the product. Is that a fair comment or am I like just way off base or been speaking to the wrong customers? I think as a general observation, uh, it's probably not incorrect, but I have met a couple of customers. I have worked with a couple of customers uh, in projects to actually make use of it, but that has to, and to do with, with my speciality. So I didn't, I was never the average uh, consultant for customers. So they used to call me <laughs> when they needed uh, specific security um, uh, compliance. And that's where I help. But this is really uh, the exception. Yeah. So, so I agree on the general statement. Um, however, there are a few a few customers who actually go down to the very last and uh, squeeze out what you can out of the permission system. So let's let's start at the very very beginning. So we're talking authorization here. We're not talking about authentication. We're not talking about audit or you know, cryptographic controls. We're talking purely about authorization. So you know, a user um, accesses SQL Server. There's a, a login and there's a user. Actually, can you explain the difference there between a login and a user? Sure. Uh, so if you'd like to be precise, whenever I communicate with someone, uh, I, I very carefully choose my words. So login is reserved for the for accessing the server. That's the first uh, the first point of contact to the server. And when then that the principal, the user who is behind, okay, so that was incorrect. <laughs> when the uh, when the account that is behind that login, let's say an AD or AAD, Windows AD, Windows Active Directory or Azure Active Directory account has passed this first level of the server login, he then accesses a database, and the access of a specific database is then a user account. The user account is backed or matched with a login on the server level, usually. In Azure SQL database, uh, you can do it differently, but in general, SQL Server or managed instance, it's common to have the login at the server, and then you you access a specific database, a user database, mostly, um, with a user account. So when you said user database there do you is it therefore possible that one login could lead to more than one user account is that the case or or must it must it always like if you've got a login of say abc 
mm-hmm. will the login, sorry, will the user account for database A be ABC and the user account for database B also be ABC or can they be different? Yeah, so you can switch the names if you really want to make your life hard. <laughs> you can call the login ABC and in the database you call it DEF. Um, but uh, that's certainly not a good practice. So normally you would keep the account names or the, the username equal to the login name. And yes, each database is independent. So if you have 10 databases, you have maximum up to 10 independent user accounts, one in each database that matches with that login. But you don't have to, right? You can also say, well, he can only, like the, the actual account behind the login can only access uh, five of those 10 databases, but then you only create five user accounts, one in each of those five user databases where you want them to access. That's an interesting point. I didn't know that. So just because you have a login doesn't mean you have access to a database. Exactly. Right, so to be specific, in, in, in SQL Server, let, let's exclude Azure SQL Database for now. It has a slightly different behavior. But in SQL Server Managed Instance, in the moment that you have a login, you can access the server and you will be uh, in the context of the system database master, usually, unless you change the default database. Yeah, there's always an exception. <laughs> but you can access the server, the system, uh, the system databases, tempdb and master. You can always uh, be in the context of them. You can't do anything in them. Uh, we don't have permissions yet, but you can exist. You can have a, a running session on the server. However, if you want to now access a user database, AdventureWorks, whatever, WhiteWorld, and Portas, you actually do need a user account in those databases. So this is the special case. There first comes the connection to the server under the login. And now, depending on which database you have a user account, you can connect to those. Actually, it's interesting you should say user database there, and uh, I'm very happy that you said, you know, want to be really precise with your words, because I know that a lot of people actually confuse database and server um, by thinking that a database is like a SQL server, but it's not. It's, you know, you've got a server that can have multiple user databases, and you're essentially connecting to or being authenticated to, to, to the server and then to one or more databases, user databases to use your parlance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, maybe this confusion somehow comes, uh, some people who are used to work with Oracle, yeah, the concept is different. Yeah, So that, that's maybe where the con, uh, confusion is. Like you have a database that is that equals kind of the instance. In SQL Server, it's, you have an instance, a server, and on the server, you have multiple databases that you can connect to. Right, right. So, you know, a, a database server called, you know, ABC could have, you know, Contoso database and AdventureWorks database, right? Yeah. Okay, okay. So I'm into the I'm into a database now. Let's let's just go with AdventureWorks, you know, as everyone knows it. By the way, I didn't realize it's actually an AdventureWorks LT, which is a lightweight version of AdventureWorks. And my guess is it doesn't have as many as many columns and sorry, as many tables and columns. I, I don't know, but anyway. So okay, so now I'm into AdventureWorks, um, and I have a user account that lets me do stuff in AdventureWorks. So how do I start locking down, you know, what people can do inside of that database? Thanks for putting it that way, because I can use it as, as a correction, right? You, you say, start locking down. The actual correct way would be start granting the, the right permissions or start opening, right? Because by default, you start with no permissions. Just because you have a user account in the database doesn't mean anything. You can connect out of the database. So having a user account automatically gives you the connect permission. So far, so good. Now you're connected. 
you can run some queries on, on system level, like, oh, what's my current database's name? Um, but that's about it. You can't even find out which user tables exist in a database until you get now specific permissions. So that would be the correct way. Instead of opening it out and, and granting something like, hey, you have all permissions or you have a role which has all permissions, you should start with, well, what do I really need this person to have? And then pick either the right role that already exists or you create a new role where you create, uh, where you add the, the permissions that you want this, uh, this user account to have. Would it be fair to say that most customers will just stick with like default ro roles that are in the, the built into SQL Server rather than starting creating their own custom roles? Yeah, I, I don't know the, the actual percentage, but there is a fair chance. So let's say the database reader role, DB reader and DB writer role, they are certainly uh, widely used in almost any any uh, environment. However, there are uh, many customers who start using their own specific roles. DB executor would be one that's very commonly created. You're allowed to execute all procedures in the database. But then customers also start creating uh, custom roles who can only access specific schemas or have specific uh, permissions to create objects in certain schemas and so on. Right? So now it really depends on how advanced the database model is, uh, how much security inside the database is necessary. But yeah, as a start, those built-in roles are very commonly used. Mm -hmm. So I want to just hold that thought just for a minute about like database reader and so on, and just talk about schemas for a minute. So I found out not too long ago, I'm sad to say, like probably about <laughs> nine months ago, that so I thought schema was like, you know, like a table definition file or an XML schema or a JSON schema. And in the case of SQL databases, that's not true, right? A schema is, is, uh, is something completely different. Yeah, if if you yeah, that, that's unfortunately a double use of the same word. It's not incorrect to say, hey, my database has a certain schema, and then you understand by the way I'm formulating it that it means, hey, we have certain tables laid out in this database. That's a schema of a database. You can say that. It's not incorrect. However, in SQL Server, we also have an object called schema, a specific object time type called schema, and the plural is schemas. <laughs> So in that moment, you understand, hey, there's multiple schemas. So these are the objects versus, hey, my table has a certain schema uh, could lead you the wrong path, right? So either a table is part of a certain schema or is uh, under a certain schema, then it's clear it's in the object hierarchy. Schema comes after database and before the table. It's like a, you can think of a container, logical container namespace for tables, which has a security border versus well, the schema, the way that the table is designed. So the word is not incorrect. It's database database developer terminology. But in SQL Server, you have to be a bit more careful how you phrase it. So you might have a schema, I guess, that could be, um, say, HR. Let's just say you know, simple example, say HR. And underneath that, you could have multiple databases that support HR. Mm -hmm. is, that a, is that a fair... Analogy. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, let's just briefly talk about the schema. So, in SQL Server, again, it's different to Oracle. So, really, just reset your brains here and uh, start anew. A database can contain many tables, and all of these tables need to be part of a certain schema. So, schema is sort of a logical container for objects. So, if you look at the at the name naming style in SQL Server, the three-part naming style would be database, schema, and table. The two-part naming style is schema and table. Once inside the database, you would work with the two-part naming style. 
So the schema is what comes before the table, and you cannot omit that. You need that. Right? So you need to decide when you develop databases which part, uh, which schema a data table is part of. Now, yes, we do have a default schema. If, if you don't decide, it will still land in a schema, and the default schema is DBO. However, you can create your own custom schema, like in AdventureWorks, they did that in this example database. They have various uh, schemas like HR, uh, person, I think, is another one, uh, sales, and so on. So in the, the AdventureWorks database, to be honest, is not the best use case for schema. It's purely done for logical uh, separation of objects with no further effect on the actual security. So that's not the exactly best way to do it. Um, but the, the general idea of a schema is to separate out objects inside the database in different security areas, where you can then have an easier life granting permissions on one schema versus the other schema. That's the idea behind the schemas. Okay. So it is, an, it is an isolation boundary on which you can put essentially access policies? Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to the database reader and database writer. Um, so if I create a, a login, Mary, and I have a user account, Mary, by default, Mary has, let's just say Mary has, is, I've, I've just created a brand new user account, nothing funky whatsoever. So just using, you know, whatever tools I would normally use, like T-SQL or SSMS, you know, SQL Server Management Studio, whatever. Does that account have any roles associated with it by default or not? Not really, with the exception of the uh, system role public. Uh, it's like an active directory. Everyone is member of the everyone group. You can't avoid that. In SQL Server, that group is called, or that role is called public. And the public role does have a view permissions, like, for example, the view system object. Um, but that's it. And you can't avoid being a member of public. You you view the system objects, but not the contents of the objects. It depends. There are some very generic ones, like for example, you can easily detect the name of your current database and such. Um, but other than that, you can't see which user objects exist, and of course, not the contents of them right. either. But you can just see that there is an object that contains data, but you can't actually necessarily see the contents. Yeah, I mean, you okay. can, you can, for example, write a query, hey, which other user accounts exist? And it will not give you all user accounts. It will only give you, return you the system user accounts or the system roles. So it's okay. not like it's returning an error. You can't see anything, but it will limit you uh, in that case uh, to, to the built-in uh, functionalities of SQL Server. So okay. your queries don't fail, but it will be filtered. Yeah. Actually, that's, that's an interesting thought, actually. Um, you said filtered and not failed. That's really interesting. And I, I want to come back to that a little bit later on because I'm going to ask you a question about columns. Um, but we'll come on to that a little bit later on. Okay, so I've granted Mary um, database reader. So that now gives her read access to, let's just keep it nice and simple, table objects in the database. If she has database X, was it executor or something? Um database execute, then they have access to store procedures. But if she has just database reader, she can't call store procedures. Yes, that's correct. But okay. she can also, let's be a little bit more precise, uh, the data reader also allows access to views, basically okay. anything that can be accessed with the select statement. Could even oh, be table-valued okay. functions. Okay, and of course, the store procedure is not a, you know, we don't just... The store procedures would not be possible. Yeah, okay. So let's say... 
Mary now has database reader. So that gives an only database reader. So it gives her read access to all tables and all views. Like she can you know, invoke a view and view something you know, through the view. Um, so now we're down to individual tables. Is it possible to, so if she has database reader, she has access, access to all tables. What would you do at this point? Would you say, let's say there's 10 tables. Let's just keep it simple. And let's say that Mary only really has access to nine tables. Would you, can you deny Mary read, uh, database reader on one table? Yeah. So first of all, yeah, in this case, you could do, you you would, she would be a member of DB Data Reader. Yeah. And if it's only one exception out of 10, or let's say out of 100 to make it even more extreme, you could uh, revert to the deny. It's probably simple in that case, right? Just deny this one table on top of being granted everything on or the, uh, reading on on all other tables. So in that case, you have two statements, right? Make Mary member of DB Reader and deny access, to, uh, deny read, deny select on that table, that specific table. So that's one way. In this case, it's effective. However, normally I wouldn't recommend relying on denies. Normally it would be more clean to work with just specific grants and not rely on a deny. Now in this case, a bit more extreme, right? If you have 100 versus one table, Deny is probably quite simple, but let's say the other way, if you have like 100 tables and 50 of them, she should have access to and the other 50 is not, uh, you see where I'm getting to, you don't want to have 50 denies, right? It's just not manageable. So the clean way is to create a schema for the first 50 tables and another schema for the other 50 tables. Now, of course, it's very simplified. There will be other users in the database. So hopefully that same access uh, restriction applies to everyone, right? And probably it has a reason why it's 50 tables versus the other 50 tables. Maybe in the one schema, we have uh, data that concerns financial transactions, et cetera, versus the other ones, the other schema containing general product information, not so sensitive, right? So you could expect that the same logic having access to this bulk of tables versus the other bulk of tables applies hopefully to almost everyone in that database. And then you would basically have one schema for, what did I say, financials. Financials dot table name would be the outcome and the other schema would be products dot table name, product dot table name and so on. And then you would only have one grant per schema, right? You can say Mary grant select on schema uh, product. And you don't have to say anything about the non-granted tables because she doesn't have access by default to the, to the financials tables. So you only have one statement for grant access to schema product so that's the clean way but of course you need to to do that from from beginning on from the from implementation from architecture uh, from from designing your database on to to create the proper schemas so i think if you're designing a database you should already understand the different type of use cases and user access paths that your that the end uh, product will support because then if you sub want to support that very easily, then you really need to create the schemas from beginning in the proper way. So that means if I've got a schema of products and another schema, um, you know, financials, and I'm granting Mary read on, um, on financials or whatever, whichever one, that means she's not got database reader, right? Exactly. So now you don't need this role at all because that role would open the whole database, all tables, and no matter which schema, it's a database level select versus we want a schema level select permission. Right. Okay. That's all, all falling, all starting to fall into place now. Okay. Next one. I think you know where I'm going to go with go next. 
Okay, so let's say Mary has access to these 50 tables you mentioned, and let's say she doesn't have access to one column in one table. Um, let's say a social security number, just to pick on something pathological. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you do that? I mean, how would you design that? And you know, what would the outcome sort of look like for, for Mary? Yeah, so if I'm smart from the very beginning, uh, I would actually not ever grant access to tables. I would create a specific schema that contains views that uh, select the data from those tables. And in those views, you can basically do whatever you want. You can filter out columns, so you can leave away, leave out columns that you don't want the users to access, etc. So I call this a, an access schema. You have a schema which only contains views, and the views do the logic in terms of which columns are actually necessary to be seen. Like ID columns, for example, are not usually necessary for users. Depends on the application, of course. Um, and in this case, maybe the social security number, you don't ever want to disclose it for, for, for specific roles, maybe, right? So that would be one way you create specific schemas in a specific views in a specific schema. You can create multiple views pointing to the same object in a different schema, right? So maybe you have a schema, uh, general users, where you have a view that omits this column versus a another uh, another schema uh, let's say elevated users which has another view but which basically just just selects all of these all of these uh, columns from that table so that would be one way to do that an alternative to views by the way is, is using store procedures and store procedures you can't you can do even much more uh, than just leaving out columns you can put much more logic into in procedures as a much more advanced way so this would be the way uh, to to uh, implement this in terms of yeah, by using a smart database design. Now, the other way is, well, if you can't f- split it in any way, or, or maybe it's already done, uh, you basically need to, to uh, block access to this column. So let's say you can't do anything about her not having access to the table. She has access to the table. So you can now either put a deny on the column level, now, denying column level is very tricky to to manage, to be honest. So I would normally, I, I would in general never recommend working with column level permissions because if you want to basically at the end have an oversight who has access to which data, it's very hard to figure out if you have lots of these specific uh, selects, denies, and column level. It just makes it very hard to have an overview of the actual effective permissions for users. So, but it's, it is an option, right? If you have the exception, if it's well documented, you can do that. The other option is you use encryption, right? So yeah, you can allow access to the column. It's just there, but the column content is encrypted properly. The social security number should be encrypted, right? I'm not talking about masking, really encryption. And then you're safe as well. That's actually really cool, actually. Um, so I want to make sure I understand something here. So if I had a table let's say let's call it x and it has three columns a b and c i'm not saying this is good practice i'm just curious so table x has three columns a b c and mary has basically read access to a and b if i denied her access to column c would she get an error or or she just wouldn't even see that c is there so in the case of deny on a column level, you actually do get an error. If Okay, so let's, let's be precise. Depends on the query. If, if Mary writes a query, select A, 
uh, and B from a table, whatever, uh, where she's not even mentioning uh, column C. So, so she will just see the data from column one and B. But uh, either she says select A, B, and C, or she says select star from table, she would get all of the columns. And in that case, she gets an error because there is a deny on one column. She doesn't see anything, right? The error errors out and doesn't omit columns. It just errors the whole statement. Yeah, that's why I asked the question earlier about filtering. Um, you know, are you going to filter the results or are you going to get an error? So, um, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and again, I suppose it does depend on the query, right? If you just select A, B, then you're not going to see column C at all. Right, so. You basically filter yourself already, right? Yeah, there's exactly. no built-in way by the, by the system to say, hey, there's a deny. We, we just return you still a result set, but omit columns. No, this doesn't right. exist in SQL. You always get the same columns that you would expect or an error message. Right. Also, you need to think about the application, right? What if we actually would do something like that, that sometimes you return three, sometimes four columns. How is your application handling that? So this concept does not exist yet today. Okay. So that's kind of a database schema table <laughs> column. Um, and I can obviously, you know, filter, filter columns by, by using views. So I could actually grant access to a view, but deny access to the underlying tables, right? And I can grant, can I grant the view? Can I give the view access to the tables? Yeah. So. Let's not deny the table. Let's just imagine we have two schemas. We have a schema containing all the tables and we have a schema containing all the views, the one that the example that I bought in like five minutes ago. So in that case, so let's say in this view schema, you have the view containing only a column A and B, A and B from the table in the table schema, which actually has columns A, B, and C, right? So the view has is selecting select A and B from table XYZ omitting uh, column C. So in this case, you simply grant the select on the schema that contains all these views, and then you're done. So if Mary now queries, uh, tries to query the tables in the table schema, she will get an deny because I didn't give her any grant on that table schema. Right? There's no reason she could access it. However, if she says select from uh, view schema dot the name of the view, then she will get the data. And this is a special uh, specialty of SQL Store. We have a concept so-called uh, ownership chaining. As long as the objects in this in, in this query, uh, let's say that the view and one table behind it, if they are if they have the same owner, it is sufficient to have the permission granted on the outermost object. In this case, the views, the outermost object, and you will not be checked on the table. She doesn't have access to the table itself, but she has access to the view. And if the view has the same owner as the table, she can access the data of the table via the view, but not the table directly. Even if you were to put a deny on the table, it would actually be ignored in this case, as long as the owners is, uh, are identical. Right? It's actually really skipping the permission checking, checking on the table. This is actually pretty cool. You do the same with store procedures, right? Same as store procedures, yes. And so one thing I sort of learned from this, actually there's two things I've learned from this so far, but one of the big ones is basically just steer away from denies and just um, you know use schemas to segregate you know segregate your information and then use things like views and store procedures or whatever to actually access that data and that way you're not giving directly access you know you're not, you're not giving access to the underlying objects directly to your to your users um, is that a relatively common model if you've got relatively complex systems 
So this is the, the ideal model. And I have seen it, and I know many customers do that, but there's probably the same amount of customers who don't do it, right? So it's, it's a matter of uh, how experienced your folks are with these concepts, how, yeah, how, how uh, advanced your, your whole database system is, if you even need such complex uh, solutions, but it is really the ideal model. Because in the end, it's the simpler model. It's simpler to come up with the proper permissions and to actually grant them in such a model versus a flat model where you have all the tables mixed with views and procedures in maybe the even worst case, the DBO schema, or just one or two schemas that don't align at all with security. Because in that cases, you have to, there's two options. You either have a lot of complex individual permissions, picking a table here, picking out columns there, picking a view a procedure there and denying it there. Lots of chaotic permissions, the nice mixed with, with, uh, with, with, with grants on different levels versus the other one. Uh, sorry. And if you don't do that, well, most people just give up and say, okay, I just use a general grant on the whole table, uh, on the whole database. And yeah. Let's just filter out in the application, maybe, right? So either either it's very complex or it's not very secure. That's the end story. If you if you don't uh, align your database design with security. Yeah, it's funny you say filtering out in the client. I mean, at the end of the day, the client now has all the data anyway, right? So you're sort of defeating the purpose against a at least a relatively well somewhat skilled attacker. Yeah, you're ignoring one potential security uh, enforcing mechanism. And, and SQL Server is really strong, really good in that. Right? If you don't have a grant on an object, you just don't get the data. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. You can't circumvent that. So we've talked about um, you know views, store procedures, uh, database schemas, tables, and so on. So what about row level? Like, How can I restrict access to specific rows based on some some information yeah so for role level we have a feature that's actually called role level security that is a very nifty way to, to create a filter query at uh, a filter clause um, that behind the scenes filtered or filters out the roles that the user account is not supposed to see so you can think of it of a function that is uh, behind the scenes uh, joined with the table that the user is trying to query and based on some attributes of the user account he will be, uh, he will see either or other, uh, rows of the table. So the attribute or the, the condition is usually solved with, with another helping table where you have maybe IDs that match to, to the, uh, to the account is locked in. So for example, you could have, uh, Michael taking care of specific customer accounts. All the customer accounts have a customer ID. Michael has a, uh, accountant ID or a user ID. Uh, and that matches to these bunch of customers. And then in the filter, you would be filtered out to see only customers whose ID matches in the matching table to the Michael's user ID in, in such a scenario. Right? So that, that's, that's a way you can do it behind the scenes. It has been done before uh, with the means of views. Uh, you can also write your own, own views uh, and, and do the same thing. But views are not as safe as the role security uh, solution that we have. I like to think of um, role-level security as it doesn't matter how you get to the data that I've, I've often sometimes seen it referred to as a predicate you know, or a, 
you know, a function or whatever, um, is going to get called. So whether you come in through Excel, let's say you've got a weakness in your permission model somewhere else and someone manages to connect, you know, to the system using Excel, um, that row-level security predicate is still going to get called regardless. Um, whereas if you do it through a view, you've got to come through the view to restrict the data. And and if you can't guarantee that, then, you know, that's where the row-level security stuff comes into it. I actually had a... uh, a customer, a healthcare customer, uh, a couple of years ago. It was really interesting uh, when we we're designing their system. And um, yeah, there's crypto here and crypto there, and you know, but there's also a lot of permissions that, that came into play. And one of them was the the system had to have a very very high level of security because, let's just say, medical practitioners. I'm not going to say what they are because that will give they'll absolutely give it away. But medical practitioners had access to absolutely everybody's data, healthcare data going back, you know, let, let's pick a number, 20 years, probably more than that. But let's, let's just say 20 years. And one of the reasons why the security bar was so high is because any practitioner had access to absolutely anything going back 20 years. So the decision was made, not because we wanted to reduce the security at all, we wanted to reduce the risk. And we put a row-level security predicate in place that basically said that by default, without some kind of you know, management override, a practitioner would only have access to 12 months of data. That's it. And that actually really made the risk folks quite happy because it meant that, you know, in the case of someone getting in and deciding to print every, you know, everyone's data out, they only had a year's worth of data. Now, don't get me wrong, a year's worth of data, of medical data still, you know, sucks, but it sucks less than 20 years of medical data, right? And it was interesting seeing the security guys not so much push back on the business, but push back on the business. Not, the pushback wasn't, you know, no, we're not doing this. We don't, we're not going to allow this. The, the, the pushback was basically, would you be okay if you could reduce the amount of data that you were, you know, coughing up? And then the business was like, yeah, by default, yeah. And so that made the security guys really happy. But the only way we actually did that was through was through using row-level security predicates. Yeah, so I've actually written a couple of, the, of these things. They're actually relatively straightforward. They look a lot like writing, kind of a you know, like a trigger, you know, that kind of idea, right? Yeah, like a select trigger sort of logic that that runs when you're selecting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I think we've covered off, you know, basically a lot. Of, uh, you know, the, the 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 core stuff. Is there any other sort of topic that you think people don't know much about, or should know about, or any of your sort of pet features? So yeah, let's say. What I just mentioned uh, in, the, in the end, uh, this ownership chaining, that is a very crucial concept in SQL so that can make your life much easier if you implement your database design by making use of that. So that's an important thing to look up. And I will try to come up with a good link here. I know it's not super well documented. Uh, I have it in my plate to do that. <laughs> um, and you should probably be aware that we have been doing a lot of work in, in terms of more granular permissions in SQL Server lately, splitting up permissions for objects into more granular permissions, always trying to help customers to come up with just the right permissions without exposing unnecessary objects or commands, commands basically following the principle of least privilege. So this is something I will put a link out here, which new... Uh, permissions we have come up with and a bunch of new server roles, not database roles, but on the server level roles that should help to by default or by 
built-in roles to support customer to easier just pick the right role without having to think too much about the permission system and which permissions to pick. So those things I will definitely put in. So on the on the chaining stuff, I just want to make sure I get this right. So this is where, in practical terms, where I might not have access to a resource like a table, but if I call something or call something like a view, that view has access, even though I don't have access. Is that it? Yeah, you need to have. Op- yeah, you sort of. You, you of course need to have access to the view, right? So somebody course, will yeah. grant you select on the view. And this somebody also needs to understand now who the view, who is the owner of the view and who is the owner of the table. And the owner is, is, is something that's in the metadata, right? It's not like it doesn't, it's not like a, like a logical thing. It's actually written down. So if in the moment you create a table on a view, the ownership is fixed. Uh, it's either you who creates that or you explicitly pick, pick an account who this belongs to. So let's say you're Fred and, and you made sure that you create a table under thread ownership and you create a view under thread ownership, um, then the owners are equal. That means if you now grant uh, select to Michael on your threads view, you, Michael can access the table's data via the view. It doesn't need any additional permission. However, if Michael tries to, to access the table itself, it's owned by thread as well, but thread didn't grant access to the table, he will be denied. As long uh, as soon though as, as the table belongs to Ted, not Fred anymore, that concept will break, right? Uh, then you can query your view as much as you like. We just get an error message because Ted did not grant you permission. Fred granted you permission on the view, but Fred is not Ted. So that's why ownership chaining really requires to be the same owner in place. Okay, that's really interesting, I think. Yeah, that's something that I'm definitely going to have to read up on. Um... Yeah, because that sounds super powerful, but I think also at the same time, if you don't know how it works, you could either A, not use it properly, and B, um, things might not work the way you expect them to work. So yeah, I need to sort of learn a little bit more about that. Any other, what about any other pet projects? Can I just explain briefly this, uh, some of these sort of more granular permissions you're talking about? Um, yeah, so yeah, let's talk about that. So one of the the highlights or one of the, most elegant uh, concepts of SQL Server permission system is it's very it's hierarchical, right? You have a database, you have a schema, you have a table, and all the and we have lots of permissions that behave hierarchically. So you can have a auto on a database, auto database permission. This auto database permission, since it's on the hierarchy, the highest one, let's exclude the, to- the server for now. Uh, grants you access to anything below. So if you have auto, auto uh, database, you also have auto schema, auto table. You can do anything. That's because of this hierarchical concept that it inherits down to whichever permission fits an order is very powerful, which is why you get all these auto permissions on the other levels. If you have select on the database, you also get select on the schemas and tables, obviously. Right? So this is very powerful on one hand, on the other hand, it somehow makes it uh, difficult to come up with the principle of pr- least privilege uh, approach. Because in the principle of least privilege, you want to grant specific permissions, but not other ones. You don't like to have uh, automatically granted other, other permissions or other options, other commands beside the one that you actually need. So and this is the area where we're trying to improve. So I, I'm going away from this hierarchy model. Uh, because this is one of the downsides. It's very nice, very elegant, but it doesn't help so much the principle of least privilege, uh, this approach. So we are coming, uh, all, all new permissions that you will see from now on 
basically you can expect to be flat on a flat hierarchy directly under control. Control is always the highest permission on the server, on the database. So new, new permissions will be directly under control, not under alter and then schema and so on. They will be directly under control, which means you can pick them individually without uh, granting other, other permissions at the same time. Right. So yeah. this is the general strategy from now on. And that will, I mean, that's going to simplify things, right? It's going to simplify things in terms of permissions, just picking the right ones. I have to admit, it will not make it much more nice if you want to plot permissions on a diagram because the diagram will not be a fancy uh, uh, multi-level tree diagram anymore as it would look today. It would be just a flat list. You've also got permissions um, at the control plane, right? We've, we've mainly been talking about data plane stuff. What about control plane? Right. So, yeah. So this is yeah. This is a big, totally different uh, area. So let's just say, uh, what are we talking about here? So what, what we just talked about was data plane in terms of what's inside the database, inside a server, um, in in terms of Azure concepts. So in Azure, we have this uh, differentiation between the control plane and the data plane. Data plane being anything below a database normally. There are a few edge cases, and the control plane is. Basically, what you can see in the Azure portal, if you ever open the Azure portal, go to Azure SQL Database Managed Instance, you so see certain things like um, creating replicas, creating backups, but you don't see things like create database user or grant access to table because those are data plane uh, permissions. These are the ones that we just talked about. For the control plane plane. Uh, activities like creating a new server or creating a new database in Azure SQL database, um, you need a different permission system. You need to use a different permission system, which is uh, the Azure IAM RBAC model today. And we are also working with Purview to bring a an alternative to grant access to uh, data plane permissions via purview across multiple servers because this control plane permission system really works on the whole hierarchy of your Azure subscription. So you have permission, you can grant a permission, for example, to create yeah, many servers in your whole uh, subscription. Um, but you can't create a permission to create to access tables in all of these servers because that is data plane. And in Purview, we are going to, uh, closing this gap to have the ability to use the control plane view, this overview over the whole subscription, your enterprise uh, objects, and then to grant actually uh, data plane permissions for all of these servers in your subscription or resource group um, yeah, at once. Very cool. Very cool. Um... Anything else you want to sort of want to cover, or do you want to start just wrapping this thing up? I think if I would be a listener, I think I would be. I feel this was pretty deep. Uh, if you're interested in more, be happy to have another one. But I think as far as it goes to data plane permissions, uh, we have gone pretty deep. Let's just allow the audience to swallow that and and walk through that with the links that I will provide. I, I learned a great deal. I mean, I, you know, one thing that I definitely definitely took away from this. One thing that's really important is is the value of schemas. I always kind of knew that they were important, but I never really kind of realized, you know, how you can model things around schemas. And I think from a security standpoint, you know, access control from a stamp, uh, uh, on the data plane, I think that's critically important. Um, so I'm really glad that you sort of stressed that, you know, in this, in this talk. 
All right. So one thing we always ask all our guests is if they had just uh, just one little thought to leave our listeners with, what would it be? All right. So that goes back the way that I had to, I explained uh, creating the right schemas for your tables. The essence of that is that I would urge everyone working with database to make sure that the designers of your database, the engineers, do take into account security from the very start. That people who design databases need to understand the access patterns in terms of which application, which group of users will access which objects in terms of general terms, right? There will always be some exceptions, but there are always typical patterns. And those patterns, they should be part of the, of the architecture of the database maybe even split databases, right? So for example, you know, don't get me wrong here, Michael, you came pretty late in that, in that uh, project with these patients, but normally I would expect a database where you want to limit, uh, uh, what was it, healthcare providers to access only one year of data to actually not even have all these years in one database, right? So I would maybe have a database per year and then it would be so simple to just uh, say, well, you only have access to this database. You wouldn't need to revert to row level security even to filter out the other databases, right? So if you think about security from the very start, you create the right schemas, put your objects in these right schemas and create the right accessing objects like the, the views or procedures. Then you will have an easy life uh, coming up with the right permissions later on. Now, thanks for that. Really appreciate it. That's... Um... Yeah, and the split database idea, yeah, it's an even even better idea because you've also, you know you've got absolutely you know, physical separation of the data as well, which is which is which is awesome. So, hey, Andreas, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, again, I realized this was a kind of a one-off sort of special episode uh, just to focus on one very specific topic. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come and uh, you know come on the podcast. And to all our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any other scenarios you'd like to sort of pose to Andreas. Or any of our other, you know, our other products, especially the database products, because now that I'm in that group, um, you know, I can get and get appropriate folks to talk about the area of expertise. I see, you know, Andreas touched on Purview, um, so perhaps we talk about Purview in depth as well. So again, thank you so much for joining us this week. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.